Present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service, and be not fashioned according to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Welcome to True Magic, the podcast where we are learning to do spiritual service with our physical bodies by learning about the spiritual meaning encoded into the physical forms of creation. In our last episode, we talked about two of the chief meanings of clothing, glory and covering. But as we noted at the end of that episode, the fact that clothing can mean anything tells us something deeper about it, namely that it is a kind of language. This makes sense since symbolism in general is a kind of creational language, the language of creation as Mathieu Bajot would say. But clothing is interesting because while it shares in the language of creation, it is also a very developed kind of language in its own right in a way that other symbols are not. Clothing by its nature is able to communicate a great deal more than most of the symbols of creation. This seems pretty significant to us, so today we're going to talk about clothing as communication. If clothing is a language, what does it say, and how can we learn to speak it well? Later in the season, we're going to be drawing out some concrete implications for how we should be dressing, and not all of those implications are things that people tend to like. So the idea that clothing is a language is something we innately know, it's a kind of instinct, But at the same time, we do like to selectively deny it when it becomes inconvenient. And that selective denial looks plausible if you've stripped your worldview of the symbolic pillars that support the idea that clothing speaks. So today, we're going to try to rebuild those pillars. Give me some examples of how we instinctively know that clothing speaks, that it's a language that communicates something. Well, if you want to be absolutely excoriated on Reddit, aside from being an anti-vaxxer or Brock Turner the Rapist both of which Reddit very much dislikes, you can wear white to somebody else's wedding and you will get universal hatred. It's often mothers-in-law who do this. They wear like white evening gowns that are basically mistakable for wedding dresses. And the level of disgust and vitriol they receive on Reddit is uh, impressive. People realize that is just a weird, messed up thing to do. What does that have? Why? What does that have to do with communication? Well, it communicates that you are a sort of narcissistic crazy person who either thinks she's the bride or wants to upstage the bride or wants to prove she's as young and good looking as the bride despite the fact that she's the mother of the bride or something equally sinister mm. it's attention grabbing it's 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 very kelly kapoor we also see things like um defendants in court will wear suits sometimes their attorneys actually provide them with suits and technically there should be no reason for that right Because justice is blind. Because justice is blind, yeah. It doesn't matter what they're wearing, it matters what the evidence says. But everybody knows that it matters very much whether they come wearing a prison outfit or just a sort of general gang member looking outfit or something nice and respectable. Because if you wear something nice and respectable, that communicates that you are nice and respectable. Precisely. I mean, it's a stereotype. But Whereas if you wear a gang uniform, that communicates you are guilty, sir. A little bit. So... There are all sorts of stereotypes about clothing in comedy. You know, we've got the whole kind of homeschooled girls in denim skirts thing. We've got the My Daddy is a Lawyer uniform, which is like a salmon pink button-down shirt and white shorts. You've got the basic white girl who wears the Uggs and the jeans and the flannel shirt. People kind of know what these things mean. It's salmon shorts and a white v-neck. Maddie and Tay said so. All right. And what do you have against my favorite slippers? The fact that they keep falling apart. If we didn't believe that clothing communicated... We wouldn't bother to dress up for a job interview or for a first date. And we do. And if you think that you're only doing that as a concession to the prejudices of other people, honestly say to yourself, what would I think if my date showed up in a clown suit? What do you have against clowns? 
the desire to live. Okay, yeah. so your date might be a psychotic killer if she appears in a clown suit. Or just terminally clueless, uh, the sort of person that you might feel embarrassed to be around. <laughs> right, so wearing a clown suit communicates that you are completely oblivious to yeah, what so- a date is. something not good. If clothing didn't communicate, Hollywood would not spend millions of dollars on costume designers. Hollywood is in the communication business. They, they call it the entertainment business, but there is no entertainment without communication. So as a rule of thumb, if Hollywood is spending tons of money on something, it means that thing is a potent communication method. Everything they spend money on, from the lighting to the soundtrack to the clothes, has to help communicate because it has to help tell the story. That's what they're fundamentally doing in storytelling. Darth Vader wears black, Princess Leia wears white. It, it, wouldn't, it, it couldn't be the other way around. And it's not a coincidence either that Luke starts off the trilogy wearing kind of pale whitish clothes and he ends up dueling Vader in an all-black outfit, but it's also not as simple as white, good, black, bad, because the stormtroopers wear white. So the language of clothing is complex, and the language of color is also complex, but white clothing can symbolize anything from purity and innocence to homogeneity and creepiness. Yeah, if you're making a horror film, you will put your creepy child in a white dress. Or if, if there's a woman who's roaming the moors, you know, singing crazy songs to herself, she's probably wearing a white dress. But it's not only fantastical space movies and sort of glamorous period pieces that use clothing as storytelling either. I think a really good example of this is The Office, the US version. Because it's a show that uses almost entirely ready-made, like store-bought, generic, normal people clothes to convey a sense of character. I don't think that anything was sort of bespoke made for the characters on the show, at least maybe wedding outfits and stuff. But generally, it's stuff you could buy at a place like Scranton. And most of the characters wear quite bland clothes. You know, you wouldn't look twice at them on the street. Maybe Andy Bernard, he has some kind of odd suits, and that's mentioned a lot. But everyone else, they're just normal people. But you would never confuse an Angela outfit with a Pam outfit or with a Karen outfit. They're very distinctive. They say a lot about who those people are. Dwight dresses in a very Dwight way, and Kelly dresses like a Kelly would dress. And there are quite a few moments on the show where they play with how people dress. Um, You know, you can see as the show progresses how Jim and Pam's clothing changes as they become kind of older and more responsible, a bit more confident, all these things. It's, It's very well done, and it shows how important it is. Surely no one really denies that clothing communicates, though we've spent some time now already hammering the point home, but did we really need to? Because surely everyone is just sitting there like, come on, get on with it. Obviously, clothing communicates. You might come across the occasional obstreperous atheist who wants to say that there's no meaning to what he wears, but presumably Christians don't think that way. Yeah, but you come across a lot of Christians who believe that fashion does not apply to them. And it's usually men... Because, you know, women may have many weaknesses, but attentiveness to nonverbal communication does not tend to be among them. People kind of mock women for how much they judge each other about clothes, but I think it's because women are speaking the language several levels of meaning more deeply than men tend to. But you get heaps of guys, particularly, who think that fashion doesn't apply to them because they're not into it. So the guy who wears just whatever his mum or his wife picks out for him from the most boring, generic, mass-produced stores that are locally available... And if he has any aim at all, it's sort of to look unremarkable, right? He's not into Project Runway. He doesn't know who Armani is. He's not into any of the noticeable subcultures like, you know, steampunk or goth or preppy clothes or anything like that. So he thinks he's just opted out of fashion entirely. I think that kind of man does exist, but I'll do you one better for the sake of our extremely niche audience. Hello, niche audience. 
I think that there are basically two kinds of ditches that I've seen when it comes to clothing. There's the reformed hipster who is extremely fashion conscious, but he likes to pretend that clothing choices are of no consequence to Jesus. And I don't want to talk about the reformed hipster right now because then I'd have to wash my brain out. But there's a ditch on the opposite side that sounds exactly like what you have in mind, which is like the reformed nerd who is too socially uncoordinated to dress himself properly and who legitimately thinks that clothing shouldn't matter because it's too shallow and it's vapid and people should admire him for the keenness of his intellect and disregard his smelly old t-shirt. But of course, he himself will judge other people on their clothing choices because despite his beliefs, clothing does communicate, and so he knows that when someone looks too fashionable to him, that communicates something about their character, at least in his mind it does. So this is why it's really handy to be able to put clothing firmly into the category of a language. If you don't have a way to articulate and think about the way clothing communicates, it can seem very nebulous and subjective. But if you use the analogy of a language, you can pin down a lot of these tenuous details. For example, we know that languages have dialects and accents that vary according to region and subculture. You can place where someone is from, and even how he was raised, and whether he's poor or rich or educated or uneducated, based on the way he speaks his language. And if you think about this from an eschatological perspective, in heaven, you can probably place when someone is from, based on his dialect and accent as well. So this reformed nerd guy, who isn't into fashion, is a bit like a guy who denies he has an accent. And I have on occasion been amazed to meet someone, always, I'm afraid, audience, an American, who legitimately, non-ironically, believes that he doesn't have an accent. Like, imagine having such a poor theory of mind that you cannot intuit that other people will hear themselves as having no accent, and you as sounding American. And imagine also not being able to hear that you form words a certain way, And that you can actually play with that and change it if you want to. Yeah, everyone else has an accent, but not him. But the reformed nerd is actually worse than that guy, really. He's worse. He's like a guy who speaks English, but denies that he's speaking a language at all. Because to him, speaking a language means speaking a foreign language. And he's not speaking a foreign language, he's just speaking normally. (laughs) Like, my man, you are not the centre and ground of existence. You can't believe that your clothing is so axiomatic, so definitional of normality... That it doesn't even count as fashion, because fashion is what other people do. Exactly. Now, I don't think I've ever in real life heard anyone so deluded that they will claim English isn't a language. But, like you, I have heard plenty of people claim that they don't have an accent or a dialect. And yet, they're usually Americans. They're either from California, where they think their accent is normal because it's what they most often hear in on movies and TV. Or they're from the Midwest, where someone once told them that Midwest accents are smooth and mellow and neutral. And they know they don't sound, you know, weird... Like those southerners or the, the folks from Boston or whatever. Boston. Yeah. As a Kiwi, it's hilarious to hear such things because both Californian and Midwest accents are obviously quite distinctive to us. I mean, I, I get it. You're a fish and water doesn't feel wet to you. But my water is different to your water and yours is definitely wet. Yes, we're not claiming that New Zealanders don't have accents either, for the record. Clearly we do, and we have heard from many of our beloved American audience that they love our accent, despite the fact that we cannot stand it. Yep. If you hear an, a, a Kiwi accent in a movie... Oh, it's horrifying. Oh, man. <laughs> so like, is that what we sound like to yep. everyone else? <laughs> so accents are inescapable. They are just the way you speak the language. If you speak any language, you speak it with an accent. Because you have to speak it in a particular way. You can't speak a language in no way. Yeah. Even RP, received pronunciation, like the Queen's English, 
that's an accent too. It's not the one right way to speak English. It's not like we should all be speaking like the Queen did. That doesn't exist. There's there's no such thing. And by the same token, if you wear clothes, you are wearing them, as it were, with the accent of your time and place. You are dressing a certain way. It's inescapable. You can't dress no way, at least not without being arrested. Just to really hammer this point home, another analogy you could use is food. So you might ask someone, what's your diet like? And they can't really say, oh, I don't have a diet. I don't do keto or paleo or any of that nonsense. And I'm not a foodie. I just eat whatever I want. I just eat normal food. Well, you might not be into food as a hobby, and you might not have a specific name diet, but whatever you eat, that's your diet. You have a diet, whether you like it or not. So everyone who eats has a diet, and everyone who talks has an accent, and everyone who wears clothes is speaking a fashion language, whether they're aware of it or not, and whether they like it or not, and they are speaking a particular dialect with a particular accent as well. For example, even if you don't care about clothes at all, and you do go into the most generic, cheap, mass-produced clothing store in the world, I I don't know, Walmart, the warehouse, whatever, that means you're selecting from words, let's say, individual garments, that are pre-selected for you in your local language. At a Walmart in Texas, you can choose between a you know a t-shirt and a button-up shirt, but you can't choose a medieval doublet. That option just isn't available to you. It isn't a word in your language. And if you found that the inventory of the store had jumped back several decades and you were confronted with like a rack of zoot suits, you're not going to just shrug and grab them and you'd be like, okay. You'd obviously you would think, this is weird. I don't want to wear this. Where, where are the normal clothes? Meaning the clothes that are words from the language you're used to speaking. And... You're also going to choose according to the grammatical rules of your language. Grammar is the way in which words are organized to make sense. So if you think of individual pieces of clothing as words, you can't just chuck any old words together into a salad and have it make sense. You know that you're not going to stroll into Walmart and pick out a pajama top and a pair of dress pants and one croc and one ballet shoe and wear them all together. That would make you look like a crazy person because people who haven't mastered the basic grammar of a language, whether it's a spoken language or a language like clothing, are the outcasts of society. They're the ones on the fringe. They are the crazy people. So if you don't understand the difference between day wear and night wear and formal wear and casual wear, you're not going to be able to function in society. And even people who get it slightly wrong look unsettling and off-putting. Think of whether or not you tuck a t-shirt in. Actually, think of um, aliens. The way aliens are portrayed on TV and movies, you know, that they don't quite get human culture and they often speak with sort of overly formal or stilted grammar and they often wear clothes that just aren't quite right and that just shows how <laughs> like, old they are. Or the Steve Buscemi meme. How do you do, fellow kids? Right. I had a an altercation recently with our 12-year-old trying to get him not to tuck his shirt, his t-shirt, in fact, into his pants. And he just couldn't understand why you couldn't do that. Because dad tucks his button-down shirt into his long pants. Right. So therefore, tucking your t-shirt into your shorts Makes as a 12-year-old doesn't make you look like a weirdo. And it was very hard to explain to him the minutiae of why you just, you just can't. You know? <laughs> it's like, there isn't any particular reason it makes you look like a weirdo. Just trust us. It yeah, does. it really does. And it's something that does take time to learn. And parents spend quite a good deal of time training their toddlers in this language. You know that little kid who dresses herself and she's got on snow pants and a tutu skirt and a little mermaid nighty that's tucked in like a t-shirt and she's all let's go to church and you have to be like no because even if she is technically modest and covered and warm that's not all that matters and your toddler will go all kind of rationalistic atomistic on you and try to persuade you that grammar doesn't matter 
Which makes perfect sense. She'll try to reduce it, (laughs) take the classic enlightenment mindset and reduce it all down to the individual components and convince you that they're functional. Yeah, and it kind of makes sense because toddlers aren't very good at actual grammar either. But in both cases, it is your job as the parent to teach them how to use real language and the language of clothes by the time they grow up, or it will be a genuine social handicap. So one way people deny that clothing communicates is by trying to say that they don't have an accent, and usually that's men, as you said, because women are more clued into non-verbal communication, which is what clothing is. Does that mean, then, that women don't make the mistake of denying that clothing is a language? They absolutely do, but it's kind of a different beast. They'll essentially say, if, if they're going to commit this particular sin, what they tend to do is say, this type of clothing or piece of clothing communicate something everyone recognizes as bad, but I like this kind of clothing, and I don't intend to communicate that bad thing. So I'm going to pretend its wider meaning doesn't exist, and I'll be offended if you don't assume that I mean something else. Kind of like using an obscene word and trying to convince everyone that it's not obscene to you. Yeah. Like, maybe you think yoga pants are immodest, but I wear them to supermarkets because they're comfy. Yeah, and I don't think that women who say that are necessarily lying because they sort of secretly want to be salacious in their yoga pants. I think yoga pants are a kind of obscenity which has become so mainstream that the meaning has become somewhat obscured to us if we are naive. And when somebody points out that meaning, there is quite a natural reaction of defense. You know, it's like if someone tells you you've been using a racist expression that you heard from your grandfather and you had no idea it was racist. You'd be like, well, I didn't mean it like that, so it can't be like that. But, you know, it is. (laughs) And you shouldn't. So we agree that clothing communicates, that's great, but the question then becomes, what does it communicate? We've kind of touched on a bunch of things that it communicates, but how can we systemize this a bit? Well, that in itself is quite an interesting question, because different languages communicate different things, like within their own grammar. You know how you can't always get an exact word-for-word translation between languages, because some languages just have info baked into their grammar that others don't? For instance, you've got some languages from quite hierarchical societies that have various degrees of difference built in. So what appears on the surface to be a simple sentence like, please pass the butter, if you say it in that language, it will tell you more than just pass the butter. It will tell you whether the speaker is talking to an inferior or a superior or an intimate acquaintance. English doesn't have that. And that is in itself significant about English culture, right? So different languages communicate different things. And this isn't just in grammar, it's also in the vocabulary, the words, and it's something that you really come to appreciate if you spend time trying to find the best ways to capture the meaning of scripture itself, which is something that any preacher typically is going to be doing. There are words in Hebrew and Greek that just don't have English equivalents. When I was writing It's Good to Be Man with Michael, one of the ways that we thought about starting the book at one point was by looking at how we've lost particular ideas in the West because we have lost particular words. And the big one for us was the word patria, which appears in Ephesians three fourteen to 15, which says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every patria in heaven and on earth derives its name. If you check your Bible, this is probably translated family, but patria is really much more than family. It is one's lineage, one's ancestry, one's race or tribe. It's those who can lay claim to your common origin. It is your family, but it's your people, your nation. Patria is the body that gives you identity. And this is a bit of a tangent, but not really, because it illustrates the interconnection between language and culture. We don't really have a concept of patria in the West, at least not anymore. We don't have a concept of a whole body that gives you identity from nation to family. Now, is that because we don't have the word patria, or is it rather that we don't have the word patria because we abandoned the concept first? I don't know. 
But what it illustrates either way is that language and culture are not separable. And so there are things that you might never fully understand about a language that arises from a culture other than your own. And vice versa, there are things that you will never understand about a culture that speaks a language other than your own. There are some concepts that were integral to ancient culture, which are so lost to us in the modern world that we literally do not have words for them anymore, which means that the words we must use instead are pale shadows of the full meaning. It's like having a cube, but only having the word square to describe it. And in the case of Patria, not only is it impossible for English to capture its essence, but it cannot point beyond it to its origin either. So um, let's bring this back to clothing. What does this have to do with clothing? As we've established, clothing is also a language, but while it has some universal grammar and vocabulary, things that are common across cultures, there is a lot about it which is culturally conditioned and can be very hard to understand for someone in another culture. And just as there's a connection between our spoken language and our culture being thin and weak and deficient today, there is a connection between our sartorial language, our clothing language, and our culture being thin and weak and deficient. Which means that we have to work extra hard to understand things that to our forefathers might have been quite obvious. Our modern mind has lost the ability to grasp a great deal of the subtlety of clothing that other cultures have understood very intuitively. And this is just built into the nature of what we talk about with true magic. The idea that the physical images the spiritual, if you are participating in those heavenly patterns through the physical forms, then naturally you're going to be able to more easily understand the heavenly patterns. But by the same token, if you are distancing yourself from the heavenly patterns by participating in bad physical forms or just no physical forms, then the patterns themselves become harder to understand. The spiritual realities become vague and opaque to you. One good example of this, to my mind, to, to kind of bring it back down to a more practical example, is the importance of wearing locally produced clothing. Many cultures had a strong regional pride in their clothes because it was tied to their land and to their animals and to the skills of their workmen and workwomen passed around the community and developed over time. So it was an integral part of their identity and it could be a region-specific design of braiding or a particular dyeing technique or some very soft wool from a specially bred sheep. Whatever the case may be, that item of clothing or that part of clothing became important to them in a way that we have absolutely no analogy for. When we talk about buying local, we mean buying cloth diapers made by a stay-at-home mom who used a pattern off the internet and fabric and thread made in China. Yeah, in the case of clothing, historically across all cultures until pretty recently, clothing was much more about collective identity than individual identity. So it communicated different things than it does today. During some periods of history, you could take just one look at a woman and go, oh yeah, she's married. And how would you know? Because she was wearing a mob cap, and only married women wore mob caps. We don't have that kind of instant visual signal today in clothing to communicate someone's marital status. There's the wedding ring, but that's much smaller, it's harder to see from a distance, and people don't always wear it. So historical clothing was very largely about placing you visually within your community. Whether you were married or not, how rich you were, what your religion was, what your politics were, maybe even quite specifically what you did for an occupation. And in a stratified kind of society with complex etiquette rules, this just made life easier for people, simpler, less awkward, because you knew who, who should defer to whom, 
who should be introduced to whom, who is the mistress, who is the maid. You knew where everyone was placed in your little village, and that was kind of comforting. And sumptuary laws, which we'll talk about in the next episode, actually enshrine some of these distinctions in law. As you say, this is something we'll talk about next episode, because clothing as identity is so fundamental to what clothing is that it really deserves its own episode. And there are a lot of surprises in there for modern Christians. Mm. For instance, like language, clothing used to be much more diverse and region-specific. And just as accents and dialects used to have much more variation, despite fairly close physical proximity by modern standards, cultural isolation meant that clothing was more regionally distinct. And today... Many spoken accents are softening and homogenizing thanks to media, and so are regional clothing distinctives turning into this kind of generic Western look. You do still find traditional clothing, you know, here and there for ceremonial purposes or whatever, but the fact that you can find today a kid in Kenya who is wearing the exact same Mickey Mouse t-shirt from the exact same brand, you know, the exact same factory, the exact same batch, as is being worn by a kid in Australia or in the US... That's wild. That's very, very new. Today's clothing is much less about this community identity, in other words. Or you could say that in a democratized and globalized society, clothing is much more about a person's chosen community, a community of identity, something that he picked, rather than about the community that he was born into, the natural body that gave rise to his identity. It's a lot more about a kind of abstract subculture. So, for instance... If you looked at a European woman today, you might not be able to tell at a glance which European country she came from based on her dress, which is historically odd. You usually, you know, you could often pick it to a region, probably, if you knew what you were doing. And you wouldn't necessarily be able to tell if she was married or not, if she was rich or poor, but you would be able to tell that she liked cottagecore, or that she was really into Black Sabbath, or that she liked vintage rockabilly type style. The modern clothing advertises the individual and the individual's chosen subculture, which may not even exist in geographic proximity to the person. It might be that someone's the only person in her entire small town who's into, you know, gothic Lolita-style clothing or whatever, and instead of her real community sort of supporting her in this, she has a community online that shares her aesthetic. So to bring it back to communication specifically, the Black Sabbath thing raises a related issue. We live in such a disenchanted world where we don't really consciously understand that clothing communicates anymore. And so I think it's really interesting that we see people trying to make up for this deficit, this handicap, by using actual words on their clothes, which is like, we've become so dull of hearing, we're, we're almost deaf. And so we can't tell what the clothing says, so we're putting subtitles on the clothes. Yeah, the subtext is rapidly becoming text. It is very common today for clothing to communicate via text, but obviously very uncommon historically. It's not that you wouldn't communicate your beliefs and allegiances by your dress in some way historically. After the French Revolution, there was a brief fad of guillotine chic, which involved wearing a thin red ribbon around your neck, like your head had just been chopped off. Dark. Very dark. Or wearing you know, the Tudor rose during various wars to indicate that you were down with Tudors. Or even wearing like a, a... benedictine monks robe to indicate your religious affiliations but i don't think we've ever before in history done it quite so blatantly we use like literal words to spell out our beliefs on the billboards of our bodies to pass us by we don't know we say make america great again or this is what a feminist looks like or i am with her or sometimes marginally more subtly they're just an image of the thing itself a logo of coke or the marvel movies or the red Sox. 
It doesn't even explicitly say, I like this stuff. That's just assumed, you know, you're not going to wear a Harvard t-shirt if you went to Yale, but it's a very blatant identification of yourself with a product or organization or event or team or media product, you know, Coke. What about Coke? Nothing, just Coke. It's on me. So that's something that we'll explore further in the next episode. But there's also a big difference between what our clothing communicates to each other. We who are in it together, who speak the same language with similar accents, aware of all the minutiae and distinctions. And what our clothing communicates more broadly, if you were to take a step back and look at it from a historical perspective. So, for instance, what would an archaeologist from 3000 AD think of our modern day clothing, what would he think that it communicates? Because as we said, there are objective things that cross-culture clothing communicates. Well, for one thing, I think they'd be struck first by just the embarrassment of riches that they would have in terms of artifacts. For most of history, textiles have been incredibly rare archaeological finds. It is so exciting to find a textile that's even kind of semi-intact because they were made of organic materials that decomposed. And because cloth was so valuable that it tended to be reused and remade and recycled until it was practically non-existent. And even then it might be sold for uh, making it to paper. So it just disappeared. But modern clothes are this bizarre paradox. They are made to exist forever with these synthetic fabrics that never decompose, but they're not made to last forever as garments. Quite the opposite. We have, historically speaking, quite badly made clothing. Dresses are not lined that should be lined. We use these comparatively weak threads uh, linen thread was the standard back in the day, and if you sewed a seam really well by hand with a strong two-ply linen thread, you would actually rip the fabric before you'd rip the seam, which is very cool and very much not how our clothes work today. You know, they rip at the seam. We have a lot of quality issues as well. We have things like one-piece sleeves as a standard instead of sleeves that would actually fit better being two-piece uh, and having like a high arm side with a gusset. This is a bit technical, but basically... These are things that make a much nicer fit and give you more mobility in your arms, but they do require personal adjustment. You can't really do it for mass production, so we don't have that anymore. We have worse sleeves, essentially. Um, we don't tend to have button shanks. We don't tend to have weighted hems on dresses to stop them from flying up. They used to put cording in the hems. And we also have just weird quality issues like people cutting things off grain. Sometimes you'll buy a pair of jeans that just kind of twist funnily round your legs and just don't sit right. That's because they've been cut off grain. Things like that which would be a lot easier to pick up on and avoid in a less industrial process. So the fact that today we not only have immortal clothing, these plastic-based clothes that will live on long after our bones are dust in the coffins, but we have them in vast mass production and abandoned almost new, sometimes literally new with tags on, by the truckload into landfills, that is historically very significant and very aberrant. So I think that's the first thing that would strike them, is just how much clothing we've left in the ground. They would say that our clothing was designed to exist forever, but that it seldom lasted very long. That certainly does communicate something. I would say that it says at least two things to my mind, which I think are, are obvious cross-cultural objective patterns being communicated. The first is that we are so wealthy that we can afford to throw new things away. And the second is that we are so ugly, culturally I mean like spiritually ugly, that we create things we want to throw away. We have no pride in our work. There's no artisanship. There's no lasting aesthetic beauty to our clothing, generally speaking. And so we chuck it. It's particularly ironic because there's no good reason our clothing shouldn't last much, much longer these days than it ever has. Not only is it synthetic, but we are living in climate-controlled environments. The clothes aren't being subject to the same extremes of, of temperature and weather and, you know, battling through ice and sleet every time we go to the barn to feed the horses. 
And we're washing them much, much more gently than back in the days of washboards. Beating them against the rocks. Beating them against the rocks. Mangle. Precisely. They just don't need to be as robust as they used to be because we know that we're not going to wear them for more than a couple of seasons, very likely. And I find it interesting if you ask people if they had ever owned one truly beautiful piece of clothing, I think most people would say no. Would you say no? The only pieces of clothing that I can think of that are truly beautiful that I've owned would maybe be like a belt. Nice. <laughs> I can think of one dress. I There was one dress I had. It wasn't, I don't mean gorgeous in the sense of being like a, you know, an extravagant Tudor gown with gold cloth and so on. I, I just mean something that is so well made that you can look at it and go, yes, that, that's craftsmanship, that's beauty, that suits me, that fits me beautifully, I feel good in it, it's lasted, it's a piece of art in its own small way. One dress, which I no longer have, which is very sad. I think for a lot of women, the only really well-made, beautiful, kind of bespoke piece of clothing they will ever own is their wedding dress. And frankly, a lot of those aren't even that great anyway. And if you think about what a man would wear to a wedding, usually it would be a hired suit that wouldn't be tailored. But it would still probably be the nicest thing he would ever wear. And to be clear, I'm not claiming that most people throughout history exclusively wore beautiful clothing. You can really over-romanticize the past here. People had the best they could afford with the time and money they had. And it's easy to kind of get an over-aestheticized view of things when you look at fashion plates and old Hollywood movies and portraits of the nobility. People did wear stuff that wasn't great. But what I am claiming is that there was no period of history in which people as vastly wealthy both in time and money, as we are, didn't wear clothes of a vastly higher standard of beauty. The really weird thing about today is that we can afford to have lace and beautifully finished garments and embroidery and tailoring, all these things. We don't feel like we can, but compared to people throughout history, in terms of how many hours we'd have to work to make it and how much leisure time we have and so on, we absolutely can. And yet we don't. It's just a fundamental change of priorities. We would rather, like genuinely rather, have a closet full of mediocre garments than to have two superb dresses to wear for the year. Which relates to what we talked about in the last episode, about how modern clothing is made according to standard pattern sizing. The philosophy is basically that you must fit the clothes, rather than the clothes fitting you. So there's no adjustability, because our industrial approach to sizing doesn't permit adjustability, because it has to all be made to fit a single idealized person, a single average. And historically, it was actually easier to conform to whatever body shape was considered ideal at the time, and that obviously changed a lot over time and place, because clothes adapted better to your unique form, whereas now clothes expect you to adapt to their form. And what this communicates is that people are essentially interchangeable parts. At least that's, if I were an archaeologist in 3,000 years, that's what I would say it communicates. What's ironic, though, is that treating people this way actually makes them stand out more if you think about the lack of structure in clothing, for instance, then basically no boning, you've got no tailoring, you've got no horsehair or padding or cording, any of these fancy things you've taught me about, that means that achieving a fashionable silhouette cannot be faked with superstructure. You can't have padded busts and hips and smooth torso lines and rigid sleeves and skirts. But if you want to achieve that ideal body shape, you have to do it with your actual body through diet and exercise, which makes the look much harder to achieve for most people. And for many people, simply impossible because their body just isn't that shape. Absolutely. 
This is an interesting thing I've learned from watching historical YouTube costumers, some of whom wear many historical clothes. And the first thing you learn when you get into historical costuming is that it's not about just the dress. If you want to blithely go to a ball and wear an 1860s style dress, you can't just buy the dress. You have to buy a lot more stuff you don't see and it seems like a waste of money, right? Petticoats and the crinolines and the corset and the corset cover and so on and so forth. And it seems like, uh, do I need to? But yeah, you do because otherwise you'll have completely the wrong silhouette and silhouette is like 90% of historical fashion, honestly, it's about the shape you are. And even like a 1950s dress, the fit and flare type, if you don't have the petticoat on it, like the model on the internet, when you get it you'll be like, oh the skirt is all like sad and floopy, it just doesn't have the right shape. What a lot of these YouTube costumers talk about is just how freeing it is to be able to construct this perfect body shape without actually doing anything to themselves. It doesn't really matter if you are thin or fat, you can still be fashionable. Nowadays it's it's hard to be fat and to be fashionable. But in the 1700s, I mean people would still know you were fat obviously, and that wasn't the beauty standard of the time, but you could still have the same kind of hip to waist ratio because you were literally just adding bits where you didn't have bits to construct that issue and you were good to go. And I think there's a lot of freedom in that. And we should also remember that clothing historically was made with quite a lot of kind of leeway built in because you might have to wear it for the next 10 or 15 years, and if you gained weight or lost weight or had a baby, or five babies, it would still need to do. So clothes were very deliberately constructed to be adjustable. You'd have these uh, split skirts and petticoats that would their seams would not come up to your waist, but they would tie first at the back and then in the front separately, so you could adjust it as according to your girth. Uh, you'd have a lot of clothes that were put on with straight pins, before buttons became such a big thing, everything was just pinned. Not quite as dangerous as it sounds, because there were layers and you didn't tend to stab yourself, but it did mean you could just pin something a little bit further in or out as you expanded or contracted. And this kind of thing, as well as corsets that did up, you know, with lacing, which could be looser or tighter, made it much, much easier not only to gain or lose weight as you happen to do, but also to be pregnant. It's a rule of thumb among historians that if you are looking at a garment in a painting that you don't have an example of in real life, a physical example of, and you want to see how they would have constructed it, you ask yourself, would this work for pregnancy or breastfeeding? And if it didn't, that's probably not how they constructed it, because it just was a fact of life. You just had to make things maternity and breastfeeding friendly. So there are some very, very interesting historical examples of maternity clothing, because it was normal clothing. You know, um, the All clothing was maternity clothing. Oh, pretty much all, yeah. In fact, the reason we know so much about maternity clothing in the past breastfeeding clothing particularly, is because of the paintings of the Virgin Mary, because there are just a lot of pictures of that, and she's often breastfeeding in them, so you're like, oh yeah, that's, so there was a slit there, and there was like a brooch there that you could undo, and you know, it's pretty cool. Well, we've mostly been talking about women's clothing here, but the fact that women's clothing is not maternity-friendly today, and cannot be made maternity-friendly, and is often not suitable for breastfeeding either, that wouldn't be lost on archaeologists. Yeah, but this goes back to the point about wealth, in that they might decide our culture was just so incredibly wealthy that we could afford to buy whole new wardrobes for our very few pregnancies, which but is true. then they might also look at the actual clothes that we have for that and decide that our culture didn't value childbearing very much at all and saw pregnancy and breastfeeding as an interruption to the normal way of life. They might observe that pregnancy and breastfeeding clothes are quite generic and bland, and don't cater to the great number of fashion subcultures that we have around at this time in history when it comes to all other kinds of clothes. Right. The post-millennial future will have maternity steampunk. Maternity steampunk. You heard it here first. There's another interesting thing that you said that ties into this. Our culture 
doesn't value childbearing because that's one element in a larger disintegration that has been going on since the Industrial Revolution. We don't value childbearing because we don't value motherhood, and we don't value motherhood because we have come to think of people as individuals, as genderless utility units that can be mixed and matched and switched and swapped in a kind of homogenous sea of drones. Our culture has become atomized, where the basic unit of society has been reduced to the individual. Each person is a unique but functionally interchangeable part. But that is historically and creationally and scripturally and existentially aberrant to the point of madness. The functional unit of society has always been the household. I think archaeologists would be able to tell how broken our society was, and I mean broken relationally in terms of our, our basic cohesiveness, just from looking at how any item of clothing today can be put on by yourself. What does it say that you can put this on by yourself? Yeah, this definitely wasn't the norm historically. A few hundred years ago, even, plenty of women's blouses buttoned up the back. Very hard to do by yourself. And especially before the advent of really good and decent-sized mirrors, you would have wanted someone with you as you got dressed just to check that your stomacher was pinned on straight or to help you with your corset, which is kind of overstated. People think that all corsets were put on by someone clinging to the bedpost and somebody else, you know, hauling away at the back and torture and blah, blah, blah. Not not really the case, but, you know, there were backlacing corsets and it was a little easier to have. I can't them. breathe. Yeah, exactly. Or, you know, putting on a hoop skirt, a bit of a faff by yourself. Any woman who has worn a wedding dress knows that, you know, there's a reason you have people helping you dress for your wedding day and it's not just symbolic, it's it's useful. Or just, you know, fussing with the folds of a draped garment. And this wasn't a problem, because for most of history, people lived in much closer proximity than they do now. You would have always had either a servant or a sister or a mother or someone at hand to help you dress. And nowadays, we just don't have that. We have so many single-person households. There's the odd joke about, you know, women having trouble doing up a back zipper. This came up in 30 Rock, I think. But in general, clothes can be put on solo. And in fact, we have uh, adaptive clothing now, which is specifically designed for people with disabilities, like cerebral palsy. You get um, like magnetized buttons, so you can put a dress shirt on by yourself. And I think that's quite interesting, because although it's obviously a good thing that people can put on their own shirts, throughout history, that wouldn't necessarily have been such a concern, because you just would have been in a place where everyone could help you with that. There's something else that they notice as well, for sure, these theoretical archaeologists, how we gender our clothing is really weird. Yeah. It is somewhat gendered still, obviously, because men and women are shaped differently, but it only goes one way. There are essentially no male-specific garments beyond underwear, and even underwear and, you know... Yeah, some women do wear boxes, apparently. Yeah, even underwear is somewhat <laughs> questionable in this regard. <laughs> it's fairly generic at this point. Despite... The rise of transsexual dressing, it's still a very, very small minority of men who will wear dresses. That is still considered quite weird. Women can wear anything that men can. Any male garment can be tailored to fit a woman's curves, and it can be marketed as a woman's outfit, even military uniforms. But there is really nothing that I can think of that men can wear which women can't. But there are things that women can wear that men can't. And this, I think, communicates a great deal about our culture, because it tells us a lot about how we see men and women and their relationship and place in society and how aberrant it is. Deuteronomy 22.5 says, The gear of a man shall not be on a woman, nor shall a man put on the garment of a woman, for an abomination unto Yahweh thy God are all doing these. When you have a culture where there's really no such thing as men's clothes anymore, but there are things men can't wear, 
that tells you the culture is aggressively eliminating masculinity. It is, in effect, saying that women can be men, but men can't be women. Men aren't good enough to wear dresses, that's gross, but women are definitely good enough to wear combat fatigues. So I feel like some people are going to hear this and say, aha, so it is wrong for women to wear jeans because they're men's clothes. And this is something which we have been asked about because of my work on It's Good to Be a Man, for one thing. But language changes over time. Clothing language changes, regular language changes, all languages change over time. What meant X in 1300 might mean Y or Z or nothing at all in 2023. So, for example, in English, girl used to mean child. And it would be... You had knave girls who were boys and you had gay girls who were girls. But a generic (laughs) child... Just go. How times have changed. Indeed. It would be ridiculous to say that people back then were being silly and ignorant about the the meaning of the word girl and using it wrong. And it would also be stupid to insist that today you can call a little boy a girl and that's correct. But we do this all the time with clothing. The people who want to say that jeans are men's clothes are doing this. They're committing an etymological fallacy. Some people want to insist that trousers used to be men's clothing, therefore trousers are still men's clothing. Whereas, on the other side of the ditch, other people snigger at the modesty standards of previous generations as if they were just completely wrong as well. So, for instance, a woman showing a few inches of hair at her hairline wearing a French hood was being daring and immodest. Ha ha ha, how silly! But they weren't wrong. In the language of the time, it was immodest, and those women knew it. So we have to have the humility to recognize that the native speakers of the language knew it better than we do. Yeah, we have this modern arrogance that says that how people dressed in the past was just kind of a more primitive and wrong form of modern dress. Like they hadn't figured it out yet. They weren't enlightened enough yet to know that it's okay to show your knees. And that's a bit like reading Chaucer and saying, oh, he wasn't very good at English. You know, hasn't the language improved since then? So we tend to think that in any case in the past where people were worried about the moral implications of a fashion... The innovators were right, and the conservatives were these ludicrous moral hysterics, because according to our clothing language, the things that they were worried about don't worry us. You know, like the ridiculous Victorians worried about showing a bit of ankle. Crazy. But why do we think it's crazy? Because we don't have a problem with ankles. It's not generally because of any appeal to biblical standards of modesty, even though that's a legitimate argument to make. But we tend to not even consider that maybe pushing the standards of modesty, whatever they are, means something. And unless we have good evidence that it's coming from a place of, hey, these modesty standards aren't biblical. We have freedom in Christ to show our ankles and justifiable reasons why it's worthwhile to make a cause out of changing our clothing language this way. And I'm not sure that's ever been a genuine driving reason behind fashion changes. Maybe we should listen to the conservatives of the time, believing they spoke their native language better than we do, and realise that perhaps it was a genuine social issue of the time that needed to be taken seriously. So we have to stop reading the language of their day through the lens of our language. A lot of people look at the medieval practice of married women covering their heads, for instance, and they automatically assume that's a negative thing, a sacrifice that you make when you get married. It's like a burden that you have to bear. Mm. You can no longer show your hair to anyone. But did they see it that way? If you look at the complexity and the style changes and the extravagance of the various wimples and the hats and the veils, And you think about the way that marriage was viewed back then. I don't think it was viewed as any kind of a burden. It would have been a coveted piece of fashion that you attained the right to wear. And we have a similar kind of funny attitude towards corsets, which I mentioned earlier. Corsets have become a symbol of, like, the evil patriarchy. They are these oppressive... Patriarchal oppression. Yeah, they they are these oppressive, you know, garments of torture which prevented women from doing anything rather than lying on a couch and fainting. And this just isn't true (laughs) at all. 
is the thing. You know, women climbed mountains in corsets. Working women wore corsets. The fact is that for most of the history of stays and corsets, which are kind of essentially the same thing, just stays were earlier, corsets were later, but it's it's fuzzy, they weren't even tight-laced. They would smooth out the lines of your torso, but they didn't actually cinch your waist in beyond its natural measurements. And what they mostly did, honestly, was support the bust. They were essentially bras. I was talking to a friend the other day who was complaining that being somewhat well-endowed, she finds regular bras uncomfortable because, you know, the, the weight on the shoulders and all that. And she was like, oh, I need some kind of long line, bustier-type thing to support me from beneath. And I was like, dude, you want a corset? <laughs> that's, that's, what, that's what that is. One quite funny example of this, I think, is the live-action version of Beauty and the Beast, in which Emma Watson, playing Belle, chosen... The great feminist of our day. Indeed. Emma Watson, who I assume was cast largely because she is sort of the intelligent feminist thing. They felt it fit for Belle. She famously declared that she was not going to wear a corset. Which... You go, girl. Yeah. Everyone was like, oh, that's that's so enlightened. That's so Stunning great. Stunning and brave. Stunning and brave. The thing is, I mean, A, it would have been stays back then anyway. But B, I'm willing to bet, without doing any kind of obscene research on this, that Emma Watson not only wears a bra in her movies, but also in her personal life, without feeling particularly oppressed by it. Or if she does feel oppressed, she doesn't feel oppressed enough to not wear them. I'm sure the paparazzi would have a field day if she didn't wear bras. Well, yeah, exactly. I mean, you just you just do. It's just, it's fine. And that is the exact style. This was not a tight lacing era that she was in. Her waist would have still looked tiny, as it did in the movie, in fact, without a corset, because her skirt was enormous. That was how it worked. You added extra width in places to emphasize the smallness of the places you weren't adding width to. And the real irony of it is that not only did she fail to understand, you know, how bras work, basically, but the yellow dress that she did wear in the iconic scene had boning in it. <laughs> Integral in the dress. There was boning. So it was Form- a, performing exactly the same function. It was function. a built-in corset. It was a built-in corset, exactly. <laughs> it's a bit like saying I don't approve of uh, insulation in my buildings and then using constructing a house using those insulated <laughs> prefab blocks. Like, it's just, why? How? And to be fair to Emma, it's not really her fault in that she is just an actress. You know, there were legitimate historical and costume designers on this pretender. film. Well, the thing is, people who should have known better should have sat her yeah. down and be like, Emma, come on. But they didn't, and she made a thing of it, so I feel justified in saying, badly done, Emma. Okay, so we've gotten a little bit far off track, I feel. Right. The point that we were making was that language changes over time. So genes aren't really men's clothes anymore. Women's jeans really are women's jeans because they're tailored to women. And if you saw a man wearing them, you would know. You would consider it cross-dressing, wouldn't you? Yeah. Yeah. Although there are certain standards of modesty that are creational and objective, as we said, there are many other standards that are relative to the grammar of the particular clothing language in question. And it is possible for language to evolve in such a way that what was once considered immodest is no longer. It can evolve that way for good or ill. Like, it, it can evolve because of rebellion, or it can evolve because of necessity. But either way, it can evolve. And the new standard might not be immodest by actual biblical standards. Right. So Marlene Dietrich was probably making a strong feminist statement when she wore trousers back in the day. Correct. But a woman the, wearing them The today, evolution of women wearing trousers is definitely connected to feminist rebellion. But that doesn't mean that wearing trousers today is feminist rebellion. Yeah, you're not saying the same thing because the language has the changed. The language has changed. Now, personally, I do think that most women's jeans are, they're tailored tight on purpose to be immodest by biblical standards. 
And so I don't think they should be considered public clothing. Not, I mean, not all jeans, obviously, but mm. there are certainly some styles of jeans or occasions for wearing tight jeans where it would be entirely okay. But other things, like women dressing up as policemen, certainly do indicate a society that is very comfortable with sexual immodesty and confusion today. And obviously, women acting as policemen is worse. I'm not saying that dressing as policemen is the real problem here. Not very widespread, I wouldn't have thought. That's kind of my point. The clothing communicates what is going on. Right. And when motherhood is considered aberrant by a society, childhood also gets messed up. If you think about what modern children's clothing says, why does it have such limited colour palettes, especially for young children? This is improving, I reckon, from maybe 20 years ago. But you've got that kind of hot pink and turquoise Barbie house thing for girls, and you've got for boys that really ugly camo and brown and bright orange and diggers and dinosaurs, and that's it. It's highly reductionistic, and it it's a lot like the phenomenon of children's music, where yes, you're exactly. creating something that's intentionally aesthetically ugly because you think that's what's necessary for children to appreciate it instead of teaching children to appreciate actual beauty. Yeah. And we'll talk more about children's music. <laughs> in a future season on music. Mm. But it's also significant that there even is such a thing as children's clothes, because for most of history, again, I mean, this goes back to the same point, once they were out of the swaddling clothes and the long dresses stage, children essentially dressed like miniature adults, sometimes even down to corsets and panniers. It wasn't until Rousseau, good old Rousseau, everything can be traced back to Rousseau, man. Hmm develop the idea that children should wear looser, comfier clothes to play in, that they started having clothes designed for them. I have a theory, a vague theory, that there's been this weird shift that in the last sort of six decades or so, adult clothing has now started to resemble children's clothing more. Grown adults will wear comic book t-shirts now, or these super comfy, unstructured, you know, track pants and PJs, or oodies. Is it oodies or oodies? I don't know, but I think your theory is onto something. Viral things with a really bold graphic avocados and, and it, skulls. it and meshes perfectly with Peter Pan syndrome. Yeah. And the infantilization of men failing to launch. Yeah, yeah. I haven't fleshed it out, but I feel like there's probably something there. Okay. We have covered a lot of ground, and this is a bit longer than we usually try to go. So let's summarize. Again, we're laying a foundation here. We're trying to put ideas down that we can build on top of later. Ultimately, our concern is not so much with what we're currently doing, but what we should be doing, what should we be wearing? What kind of clothing would participate in the heavenly patterns as we see them, the spiritual realities that God has set forth as our ideals in scripture and in nature. But to get there, we have to be able to see what patterns our modern clothing currently participates in. So to summarize, we have argued for two big ideas in this episode. What is the first idea, Smokey? Well, simply just that clothing does communicate, just like a language does. It says things. And that is actually the major way in which it is able to participate in heavenly patterns. It can reflect spiritual realities because it is a language that is able to communicate those realities. And secondly, we've learned that modern clothing communicates some pretty dark spiritual patterns. And specifically, I think there are four big ones that we've identified. First, there's identity itself, which is what we're going to be looking deeper into next time because it's extremely fundamental to so much of what we're trying to do with true magic. Modern clothes participate in artificial, abstract, chosen identities rather than natural, embodied, conferred identities. Secondly, there's what you might call an axiological pattern being hosted by our clothes. Axiology has to do with value and values. 
Our clothes communicate two values in particular, I think. Great financial wastefulness, coupled with even greater aesthetic poverty. So we've got this enormous amount of material wealth and this enormous amount of spiritual poverty. They communicate that we've replaced the true glory of beauty and artistry with the false glory of wealth, just the mere ability to buy more stuff. The third thing that's worth mentioning is the machine-like attitude that our clothing signifies when it comes to social cohesion. Our clothes communicate that functionally we've dissected the natural social bodies that God created into lonely individual parts. And fourthly and finally, our clothing communicates enormous sexual confusion and immodesty, and especially a self-destructive desire to make women men, and yet paradoxically to make men lower than women. None of these are great surprises to most of our listeners, I'd imagine. This is the culture we live in. It's characterized everywhere by these destructive spiritual patterns. But it is instructive to be able to see how those patterns are instantiated in our clothes in such obvious ways if you just think about what to look for. So how should we be thinking about reforming our clothes? A good place to start is by thinking about how our own identities are bound up with those clothes, which will be the topic of episode three. Until then, if you have enjoyed this content and you think other people should hear it, please go to your local podcast app and give us a high rating because the higher the ratings, the more this podcast will be surfaced when people search for the sorts of things that they're interested in. And of course, the more likely they are to click on it when they see that it's got high ratings. Yeah, if you want to give us a low rating, just just go have a cup of tea instead. Don't bother. If you're a paid member, you can expect a new episode of Talky Nonsense coming out soon, where we'll be covering Smokey's favorite facts that has been recorded and is all queued up. And if you're not a paid member, you can head on over to truemagic.nz or truemagic.nz if you're an American and follow your nose. You'll get early access to True Magic episodes along with Talking Nonsense, which is a lucky dip of bonus contents from the mystery bag of cats that is our mutual brain. Plus, you'll also get the ability to comment and join community discussions. And of course, the most important thing, the warm glow of re-enchanting the world just that little bit harder. Again, you can subscribe at truemagic.nz. That's it for this episode. Go forth and present your bodies a living sacrifice to God, which is your spiritual service. This has been True Magic.